Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck, and we are here with a very awesome guest today. Her name is Simone Norman. She is a comedian, actress, and an organizer in Central Brooklyn, DSA. Hi, Simone. Hi. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Unrest is best. Unrest is blessed. Indeed. I'm blessed to have unrest. Same. Good. We try to keep it secular around here. Oh. Uh, well, thank you. Please. Secular, sorry. Yeah. Yikes. Indeed. So speaking of religion, um, is this a good segue? I don't know. Um, I think I would like to start by recapping a little bit of the DSA convention that I was at last weekend in Atlanta. Fire Festival of the Left. Oh, my God. I guess it was the weekend before last now because we're doing this on Monday. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was a lot. Um, I guess the church, the church reference is in reference to a party that we threw as a caucus, emerge caucus on Saturday. No, Friday. It's all a blur in my mind. That was like the first controversy of the convention was the flyer for that party. (laughs) Oh my God. Is there a nun on it? Yes. Yeah. So deeply disrespectful to, um, to nuns, nuns, to, to extremely online, Right-wing, social democrat, anti-identitarian tradcaths. Hooey. Did you know that was That's a thing? That's we need. I did, sadly enough. But they're normie socialists, okay? Yeah. Just out here appealing to the regular person with extremely online anger about abortion and flyers 24-7. Well, the party I heard was lit so i mean i wasn't there but i had extreme fomo because it looked super fun so so there i like to think it was pretty lit um lit as a catholic church in uh in northern spain in 1937 like like the notre dame recently Uh, yes indeed on fire it was similarly lit to all of those things it was wonderful um it was really nice to meet some of our comrades from around the country and it was lit enough that people came, even who didn't necessarily agree with us on everything. So Hell yeah. that, makes, that always makes me feel good. I like to think, I mean, I don't want to flatter myself, but I like to think that I can plan a party that's good enough to make all the Bread and Roses people and the Socialist Majority people and the Emerge Caucus people get along. Have a big group hug in the center of the dance floor. Yeah, let, let's not go that far. Oh, yeah, but uh, there. there's definitely, <laughs> we definitely dance like in close proximity to one another. Hell so. yeah. That was nice. But yeah, did I did I say that you're in the Emerge Caucus with me? Yeah. All right, cool. So going in, I knew that this convention was going to be stressful and boring in different combinations that were really bad and unpleasant for me. But I was looking forward to two things. And those two things were the church party that I knew was going to be good because I planned it mm-hmm. and the Street Fight Trillbillies live show on which I was a guest. Hell yeah. I'm very jealous. And that happened that happened on Saturday. The three greatest podcasts. The trifecta. Indeed. Yes. Street Fight Trillbillies and the District Sentinel Radio, who I didn't know before this, but they were very good and very funny and very cool. Um, it was really cool to be a guest at the show. I was kind of in a bad mood going into it that day. I was Why th- were you in a bad mood, Jamie? Oh my god. So where do I begin? So many things. At the at the damn start. Yeah. And then I pulled up to the venue and I saw right across the street, shining like a beacon in the night, my favorite topless bar in the world, the Claremont Lounge. 
pew, 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 pew. I've never been there. I want to go. Oh, you got to go. It's so good. It sounds amazing. It's this like, it hasn't changed since the 70s, I feel like. I don't even know if it's been around since the 70s, but it feels like it has. All the things haven't changed since the 70s. Yeah, exactly. All this, all the, it's like more of a topless bar than a strip club. For those not in the know, a topless bar is when the ladies dance behind the bar. A strip club is where they dance like up on you. Mm. And all the strippers who work there are like a little older, a little fatter. Maybe they got small boobs. Like they're unconventional beauties and they're all fucking badass. They're all rad as hell. And there's also a really good dance floor that's really lit on the weekends. So I saw that bar and I was like, oh my God, we have to go there after. We have to go there after. I'm going to bring all my nerdy DSA friends. It's going to be amazing. And the podcast guys too. It's going to be, it's going to be great. So then we had the show. It was really amazing to meet um i i knew the street fight guys before shout out to brett and brian it was very wonderful to see them and i hadn't met the trillbilly workers party people but shout out to tom and terrence you guys are amazing and i love you and as soon as i told tom that the claremont lounge was right across the street and we have to go there he was like oh i fucking love that place i've already been talking about it and i was like we are going to be friends so That was a really cool experience. And I got to tell a couple stories on stage. One about my horrible boss who sexually harassed me. Mm. And oh my God, I had a room full of people calling for his blood. It was so so gratifying. It was so gratifying. It almost made the two years that I had to spend on a constant low level of douche chills when I was working for this guy. This is a former boss. Worth it. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not talking about Sam Cedar. I mean, you know, Sam isn't perfect, but he's never sexually harassed me. Then he's perfect to me. It's sure. <laughs> got a lo- low standards, and that's good. I like that. Yeah, I've also had bad bosses. Uh, I, I have great personal affection for my work dad, Sam Cedar. I think that much is obvious at yeah. this point. Um, so, yeah, they were calling for my boss's head. It was really amazing. Everyone there was like a DSA person who was about to jump out of their skin from two days of this convention. The first day of which, by the way, was mostly spent arguing about the rules. Like... There should be a time cop there. I'm like, where's the Andy? Where's the time cop to keep people from doing this shit? Like, we're so behind schedule. We only got to about half an hour of the agenda for the day. The rest of the time, people were pulling this crazy procedural shit with the rules. Like, have the courage of your convictions, people, and just argue about the stuff that you want to argue about. Don't try to change the rules. It's really annoying. Anyway, I got to meet a lot of cool people. Um, Folks came up to me and said that they listened to this show and that was really nice. It meant a lot to me. Um, anyone who says they listen to the Antifada is usually cool. Yeah. Usually respectful of my time, my space. Occasionally, I can say this because I know they're not listening. People who only listen to the majority report, mm, I don't always know about them. Yeah, no. It's, the, I feel like Antifada is more of a self-selecting listenership. Yeah. Whereas like majority report is kind of just like... You're forced to listen to it. Yeah. Yes, you're not. It's not self-selecting. You're in a you're in a, a room, and they won't let you leave the room until the show is over. You've got I a mean, device in your tooth, and it's beamed directly into your brain. I mean, and you know, maybe someday if uh, if Uncle Sam Cedar gets his uh, big government social democracy, that'll be part of it. Yeah, it'll be for for the health benefits, obviously. Um, but yeah, by the end of it, I I got a little bit tired of. Um, talking about the majority report because I work there every day and it's enough, enough of that. But um, no, everyone at the show was really amazing. And then we went to the Claremont lounge afterwards and the dance floor was so lit 
The DJ was like 80 years old. He was the king of Atlanta. He was wearing a very cool hat. That was his crown, I think. Uh, you could smoke inside there. You could smoke on the dance floor. Like, just like the 70s. Yeah. Hell yeah. And like they were playing such good 70s jams. And like I don't always want to dance, but I fucking cut a rug on the dance floor. I danced in the circle, the little circle that opens up where like people go dance. You were in the, in the circle. C- you were in the center of it? For a little bit. Ooh, yeah. There's so much pressure when you're in the center of the dance floor. I circle. know. I know. I always freeze up and just like do a like the macarena i'm just like i don't know <laughs> i, I did watching i i wasn't quite sure what i was gonna do um i like to think that my sequin dress helped me a little mm-hmm. bit because mm-hmm. i wore a sequin dress to the show because i was like well i'm i'm the only woman i'm gonna stand out no matter what i might as well lean into it and get a little bit glam yeah so i i wore my sequin dress yeah, like a disco and, ball in the center of the dance floor yeah exactly my black sequin dress i was like a dark goth disco ball that's beautiful and maybe a little bit of la chica araña came out at the end she's my alter ego sometimes she dances like a spider (laughs) she's pretty cool um all those guys were so fun and i was actually really stoked that i got some of my dsa friends to come too some of whom had never been to a strip club before which i find very adorable well this like i didn't run for uh convention delegate this year which is, you know, why I didn't go. I mean, I don't know if I would have been elected or not, but it's interesting because it seems like the proceduralism, like the actual content of the convention was so horrible that I should be thankful that I didn't even run. But then the social aspect and like the cool shows and the hanging out and the parties were so fun that I'm like split because I got some because I would have loved to have gone. I'm just picturing you as a gothic... uh, disco ball in the center and that that'll have to be enough i'll just imagine it yeah well maybe someday we can go there together and we'll read you want to get out of here irl do you want to get a you go pick up your dress Let's go to atlanta are not that expensive no just saying my boyfriend's dad lives there we could nice chill there <laughs> nice well i'm not gonna rule that out i think that'd be super fun cool uh yeah it was a real mixed bag the convention itself was oh, it was so stressful but there there were definitely bright spots mm-hmm. all right as I reminded everybody uh, when we were kind of debriefing about it, um, it wasn't that long ago that the DSA endorsed John Kerry and Barack Obama. And Cynthia Nixon, but that's... Yeah, uh, well, we don't have to talk about, to that. Talk about that. Too soon, too, too soon. soon. But yeah, no, I know. It's it. <laughs> John Kerry. Oh, my remember God. Remember him? Yeah, I do. I remember my parents being like, this is our guy. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to make it all right. He's totally going to make it. Yeah, he was never going to make it. Um, But we passed some really good shit. Yeah, it seems like every the the like the weekend was hugely productive in passing wonderful resolutions. But it was such a um, just soul sucking process that every member of the DSA who went was is just skin is just flappy skin with no soul. Yeah. Sorry, not you. You look beautiful. Oh, I thank you. You look radiant. I'm flappy on the inside. Yeah, okay. it must have been just totally like on the outside of everything. The only th- the only thing I've read about the DSA convention is from Dan Labatz, <laughs> which was not totally inaccurate. Dan Labatz did a pretty was, good no, job. I thought it was good. I wasn't. Yeah, I think uh, I like that guy. Um, but it it seems it's so tragic that you know everything that went on that weekend and everything that you achieved. It all got reduced to this, like, what, nine-second clip that oh every asshole online mm-hmm. feels the need 
you know, I'm, I'm not like a huge DSA defender. I'm not in the DSA, but I feel like I need to tell these people to get a brain, especially the people who are like from the left talking about it. Yeah, no shit. Looking at you, Aftermath. <laughs> you fucking morons. Well, I think this position of, you know, being, oh, I can't believe they're making accommodations for disabled people or whatever. That's so alienated to normal people. This position is very much in the minority on the left. And we need to remember that. And I'd also love to remind people that anyone who has a disability is is constantly alienated from normal. I don't want to use that word, but you said like normal people saying that like from non uh, differently abled people, like 100 percent of the time. And like, wow, they finally encounter a space where somebody would be more accommodating and you're just going to call the entire organization an embarrassment for even allowing it to happen. Yeah, like are disabled people not normal people? No, they're, are they of not part of the are. working class? Not to mention gender nonconforming people who yeah. are also I like I'm to me there's just a transphobic attack that like people who are mad about that video. Um and also, you know, even if you do have a problem with like that kind of process of like interrupting a speaker to say those things, uh don't judge something by like a 10 second video. That's stupid. Like you shouldn't do that. Ever. Yeah. And if you call yourself a member of the left, definitely don't go on, I don't know, a white nationalist TV program to make fun of the DSA for trying to be accommodating. Not going to name any names. Just saying. I have no idea who you're referring to. I was trying to get a platform for myself. um, We'll talk about it later, Andy. Don't worry. Uh, But like, yeah, it was a big distraction from all of the more substantive things that went on. Uh, including we passed some we passed some good shit um there was a resolution uh, sort of a bernie or bust one saying that if bernie does not win the democratic nomination we want to endorse john Kerry. Endorse, yeah basically <laughs> another john Kerry, and that was not controversial it passed overwhelmingly to the great chagrin of the new york times i saw their little hand-wringing piece about it um we passed a resolution in support of open borders which nice. I think is really important to keep our eyes on the prize. You know, people have talked about how open borders is a trap or it's a right wing talking point or whatever. People on the left have said this, that, you know, we shouldn't argue for open borders. We should argue for more open borders because that's what's realistic and what we can execute right now. And the open borders resolution contains all of those incremental goals within it on the way to open borders or no borders or whatever we want as global socialists or communists you know what i like to really keep at the forefront of my policy when we have like 12 years before eco apocalypse incrementalism Mm. Mm -hmm. it makes me feel safe and i think that everyone on the left can agree that it's like as you said more realistic so yeah yeah well it's weird right because we support some of the same incremental goals right like oh sure we want to close the camps We want to stop locking kids in cages. We want to demilitarize the border. We want to decriminalize migration. These are all things that are achievable in the near term, I believe, if enough people care about it and enough people stand up. I remember when I was working for Alexandria and like she has kind of moderated on a few things since taking office. But I mean, I love her and I'll always have her back. But I remember one thing she said on the campaign trail that I just loved was that, uh, like, why are you compromising before you even get to the table? 
Like exactly. Why are we why why are we trying to chip away at this perfect policy out of a big block of granite and present it in its final form? Like, so that everyone can say, yes, this is perfect for everyone. Why not just haul a fucking slab of granite out and uh, start chipping later? Like, we don't have time. Like, what? what, the stakes are too high. Yeah. Yeah, they are. But then you run into the problem with folks like, I don't know, some of the more electorally oriented people who think that the only thing we should be focusing on is short-term policy and... It's somehow bad to have an ideology or a long term political horizon. And I disagree with that as well. So like what I like about the open borders resolution is it doesn't require you to choose between those two things because Mm -hmm. I don't think we should. I don't think we should. So like on the one hand, we're going to be working over time to try to undo the damage that's being done by Trump. We're going to do whatever we can to make things better for immigrants um, with our eyes always on a horizon of getting rid of borders, because that's ultimately in the long term what we're going to need to do if we're going to establish socialism around the world. And I think that if you're I mean, if you're a leftist, why are you using rhetoric from like with of like a scarcity mindset? Like that's a dem establishment like with like oh that if we if we use resources on long-term goals like we'll run out of organizers to do short-term goals. like you said you can you can package it together in a way that it's it, there are no rules like we can just go after this the way that we want and it's not a like a zero-sum game and i just um yeah like i said before why compromise before you've even gotten yeah. to the table yeah and like we should know why we're doing these things. Yeah, we can't. The left can't be a purely reactive force. Yeah, or else it's never going to get anywhere. And like that's one thing I appreciate about your critique of Antifa, Andy. Like it kind of situates it in its proper place. That it is necessary to be anti-fascist. It's necessary to react to these right-wing forces that are rising around the world. But we also have to do more if we want to, you know, overthrow capitalism or solve the problems in the long term. So you're saying you're against the Antifa resolution. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that a big, like, another controversial thing where people were like, we can't say we're, as a rule, anti-fascist? Yeah. So the resolution, I mean, honestly, I had mixed feelings about it myself Mm -hmm. because it created a national anti-fascist working group. Okay. Right. Which I support in theory. Mm -hmm. I voted for it. I had some, like, critical support for it. I did have concerns about the info security aspects of it. That's fair. Because That's totally fair. a lot of anti-fascist organizing needs to be done in secret in order to be safe and effective. Yeah, I'm on my Facebook. I'm like headed to this direct action, ready to kick Nazi asses, <laughs> meet y'all at Foley Square. And right. like, at the it. same time, uh, with like the, you know, this threatened repression against Antifa as terrorism, especially against like Rose City Antifa, for example, it's very good for more visible, more institutionalized organizations to say, well, we're also Antifa. So if you want to come after the underground groups, you should come after us as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm like kind of mixed on the resolution as well, because, you know, my, my, my article in Commune about Antifa kind of says, like, there's a revolutionary aspect to Antifa and there's a more of a, you know, like a, an aspect of it that wants to, like, defend the way things are against fascism, defend liberal democracy against fascism. Um, and I was kind of encouraging 
moving beyond the concept of Antifa as purely defensive, as purely reactive. Uh, but, you know, if the state is going to come down on anti-fascists the way it's threatening to, I think we need to show total solidarity. Oh, yeah. This is not the time to be retreating from anti-fascist organizing because some of us want jobs in the Democratic Party and we don't right. want to be associated with anything that seems like a paramilitary wing, you know, That's what's that? not yeah. to get too spicy with it, whatever. Mm, that's spicy. And it's also true that anti-fascist work doesn't just involve uh, fighting in the streets and doing illegal shit. Right. That's part of it. But that's not the entirety of it. And my hope is that if the DSA, you know, if these if these nice DSA folk establish um, sort of a public facing wing of anti-fascist organizing, it could put a slightly different face on it than the media narrative right now, which is entirely created by the bourgeois press. Right. I mean, we're 50, what, 55,000 strong right now. Biggest. And now since ISO dissolved the largest socialist organization in the country i mean like taking a hard line stance against anti-fascism as a as something enshrined in the very constitution of the org is is i think it's awesome and i agree though you can get into the weeds with with infosec and like everyone is trying to dox dsa and like sell the information to the dnc or something i don't know like i got fished this past weekend did you get that message i got the i got the message about it I got the message, I got the fishing thing, and I am not even making this up. In my haste to delete it so that I wouldn't click on the link, because I immediately knew what it was, uh, I clicked on the link. Oh, no. (laughs) With my fat, stupid sausage fingers, Uh and I John Podesta that bitch, and now, (laughs) and then I was just like, oh, what have I done? Because it was so... They're all going to get your risotto recipe. They're all going (laughs) to... And so I immediately had to like, you know, change my passwords or whatever. But I, but everyone in this, this, the, the Discord, or the Slack or whatever was like, oh, "Are you getting this? I'm getting this." And I was like, "Yep, I clicked it." And they were like, "Are you fucking serious?" I was are like, you "Okay, oh my yep, god, nope, I clicked it." <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to tell the story about how I was trying to X out of it, and I didn't mean to. And they were like, "Okay." sure dsa Mm. leaks coming soon yeah brought to you by yours truly jesus it's gonna be so boring when that happens yeah it's all just it's all just like doodles about when we get together to like plan which snacks to bring to the meeting thing that people don't always realize (laughs) about boring stuff being a socialist organizer like most of it is very boring. Yeah. Trina and I was just going to be like, oh, these people are actually just trying to figure out how to order a pizza. <laughs> this sucks. Like, I say that as someone who does a lot of it. Like, part of why I've kept up with DSA stuff, even as I've gotten really busy in my career, is because it's a completely different skill set than being a media person. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's no instant gratification. You don't get a ton of attention. You have to listen to other people talk. There's a lot of spreadsheets. There's a lot, a lot of, of wind emails, meets, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of a lot of Zooms, a lot of doodles. It's like really not glamorous. And I I don't want to lose touch with what it actually means to be an organizer, because a lot of people have a lot of opinions on what the left should be doing right now. And, you know, not everyone who talks about the left or has opinions should have to be an organizer in real life but sometimes i find some of these opinions would benefit from some actual first person experience yeah is that diplomatic enough 
That's very diplomatic. I think that especially when you get into the realm of like where the like the intersection of art, entertainment, comedy and leftism, you get you can get into a snare where you can say like, well, if you have a large platform um, because you're an entertainer and you have many fans or a large audience and you're on the left and you're spreading ideas that you are um, not entitled, what's the word, obligated to be uh, organizing. And that's a slippery slope because not every entertainer is an organizer uh, just because there are some like... I'm looking at you guys and hopefully myself. Some who can go back and forth. Uh, doesn't mean everyone can and shouldn't feel like, well, I got a big, you know, I got a big uh, email subscription list. So let me go try to organize these people. But but I do think that it's important for uh, to just to make sure that you're being responsible, at least with your mm-hmm. with your mm-hmm. audience. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Andy and I have had a lot of conversations, actually, how we could maybe use this platform to try to get some kind of practical activity going in real life. I mean, people come up to me all the time and say that they joined DSA because of me. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Andy, but I feel pretty good. My goal is to turn this podcast into an organ of the party. (laughs) Indeed. A collective organizer and a collective propagandist. The bladder, I think. (laughs) Yeah, which organs are going to be? Bladder. They're going to be one of the sexy ones or like a spleen? Bladder's like halfway between between sexy and functional, I think. It is very unfortunate that organ is the term that Lenin used for that. I don't know <laughs> why. It's probably some Russian thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's some weird translation. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I feel like there's got to be a meme about that already. I'm going to check my dank leftist meme stash later. I think A Thousand Plateaus was just the meme about that. Oh, man. I'm going to look at that, too. Um, what else? Uh, sex work decriminalization passed overwhelmingly yeah. as part of the consent agenda. Um, there was a brief effort to take it off the consent agenda Boo. that failed miserably. Yay. So it's good to know that all of our DSA comrades are standing with sex workers. Um Past the hat, though, the measure that would have given money from national to the poor chapters that need it, that failed. And I was pretty bummed out about that because it seemed like kind of a no brainer. It was such a small amount of the budget. It's not that much money. It was like $100 per chapter, wasn't it? Yeah. The whole thing cost like $400,000, which is a small fraction of the budget. They were allocating millions of dollars worth of budget for like staffers and stuff. And then when it came time to help out smaller chapters, a lot of whom were full of very low income people Mm -hmm. who were just like doing their best to organize in their free time um, and can't even afford a meeting space. It failed. And it seemed like that was a bit of a proxy for other political fights that I really only dimly understand. Centralization. At this point in time. Decentralization things. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like I think it's really unfortunate whenever uh whenever something becomes a proxy for something else especially in this case when it happens on the backs of poor chapters absolutely so that, that bummed me that, out that bummed me out to hear about because i supported it from afar for sure yeah, yeah well um but we are going to try to maybe make up for it a little bit in like kind of a mutual aid way have some fundraisers in new york and send the money to chapters that need it we try to be comrades. Who's who's um who's bottom lining that? Oh, I think I might be. Ooh, I want to so, help. Can yeah, I help you? Yeah, let's do it. Hell yeah, that's what I did let's for Alexandria. It. Was fundraising. 
Oh, awesome. Um, and then I've been doing that for uh, for the like electoral working group. But I kind of love my electoral fam, but I'm getting less and less electorally oriented these days. Kind of would be down to do some more issue-based fundraising projects or, yeah. Rad. Well, plans are being made. Ooh. You heard it here first, folks. Now we actually have to do it. This yeah. is going to hold shit. us accountable. <laughs> yeah. So why not? I'm not like super busy or anything. It's fine. I don't, got, I, don't got, I don't have anything going on. I do love planning parties, and I did declare myself the nightmare at, at the at the convention, actually. So. The nightmare? Yeah, I was not elected. This is not a democratically elected position. I just looked at the facts. I looked at the evidence, and I said, oh, I'm the nightmare. And The mayor of the night or just a nightmare, like a dream you want to wake up Oh, about? the mayor. The, <laughs> the night mayor. You just said, I'm the nightmare. Oh, oh yeah, no, that's different. I mean, to some people, I yeah, probably no, am I'm the a, nightmare. Absolutely a nightmare. I'm a nightmare and the nightmare. Yeah, and, like nightmare, daymare. And so far, no one has tried to take that away from me. So that makes me feel like uh, it's a fairly legitimate reign that I'm currently. Yeah, I respect doing. your position. If we organize together on a fundraiser, I will. I'll take. I'll take daymare. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. So let's see what else. What else? Um. Oh, so I was involved in a nonviolent direct action over the weekend that I would like to talk about a little bit now. Um, it was through Close the Camps NYC. Um, anyone who wants to get involved with this stuff, by the way, should go to closethecampsnyc.com. Um, I'm sure that there are actions happening in other cities, too. I don't have my hands on that info right now, but I'm sure you can get involved if you don't live here. Um, and this action was... It was actually really impressive because the main organizers, Movimiento Cosecha, it's only like 20 people. Oh, my God. And they got a few hundred people to come out to this action that I thought was very well planned. Um, I was a marshal for the action, which is one of many roles you can do if you don't want to get arrested on that particular day for whatever reason. I have a genuine question. How would I get involved with marshals? With the DSA marshals. Oh, with the DSA marshals? Yeah. Just send them an email. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, but for this, um, the training was through uh, Movimiento Concecha. Right, right. Concecha. So I went, but th- there was a lot of overlap. There were also a lot of Jewish Voice for Peace people there. Yes, I got the, yes. They're really I'm, rad. I, I'm on there. And uh, Jay Fredge, I think. Mm-hmm. Jews for Racial and Economic yes, Justice. Yes, yes, yes. They were there. Some really cool baby boomers from that group. Friends of the show, Eli Valley. Oh, that was the next Apple. day. Oh. Oh, Molly was at both, actually. Mm. But um, yeah, so on Saturday, almost 100 people got arrested after blocking the West Side Highway for a decent amount of time, chanting abolish ICE. Some of our emerged comrades got arrested, which was great. Yeah, shout out to Emmy. Yeah. You rule. But it was a really good action. I thought it was very well planned. It started with a rally. Then there was a march. And what marshals do during the march is they just basically keep everyone moving along together in the correct direction, um, get between people and the cops, make sure that no one gets arrested who doesn't want to, um, and block the, block the streets, block the traffic while people are getting across to make sure that everybody is safe. And they give you a cool yellow vest to wear. So I had a nice time doing that. That's awesome. Good there, for you. Thank you. There was very little drama. The cops were actually being pretty chill that day. Wow. Um, until, you know, until they arrested people. But yeah. even then, they... There was no, there was no violence that I That's great. observed, and I ran into Molly Crabapple there. Always nice to see her. And then um, the next day, there was another action, and that was the Jewish um, Jewish Voice for Peace. Who, who is it? Andy? 
Sorry. Do you know? I don't know. Pay attention. Oh, my God. <laughs> Busted. He's checking the Mets score. Oh, shit. Right now, I think. I mean, that, that's just what I imagine he's always doing when he looks at his phone. Anyway, um, that action was really cool, too. A bunch of people went and occupied and shut down uh, one of Amazon's brick-and-mortar stores in Manhattan. And oh, my God. I hate that store. The one in Herald Square. I hate this was a Maybe. never again action, right? Yeah. Never again. Never again is now. Camps. It's like a coalition of different groups. Yeah. JVP. Yeah. yeah. And they actually arrested so many people at the Amazon store that the NYPD had to commandeer a city bus. Oh. So I've never heard of that. Yeah. To transport all of them to the to jail. So what does that work? You're just like on the bus going to work and cops get on and are like, we have to take this bus. With like an ad for a Broadway show on the outside of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. That, it's nuts. It's crazy. But two friends of the show were among the arrestees that day, um, including Molly Crabapple and Ellie Valley. Shout out to you guys. You guys rule. Solidarity. And Ellie Valley got out of jail and found something even worse had happened to him. Mm. His Twitter account got suspended. Ugh. Seriously? For what? The humanity. For, uh, oh, his vicious anti-Semitism, mm. of course. Oh my God. He was mass reported. You can't make this shit up. He was mass reported by right-wing people for being anti-Semitic. Oh, boy. The guy's name is Eliezer Valley. Uh, just saying. You, can't, you, you fundamentally can't be anti-Semitic when that's your name. I mean, you he's can, not. But he's not, yeah. He's not, is the point. He is not a capo. He attacks the capos, and they don't like it. It's some real twisted logic, the people who think that he's... Uh, yeah, he's anti-Semitic against people like Meghan McCain. <laughs> you can feel free to cut out the part where I say you're not allowed to be anti-Semitic if you have a name, <laughs> Eliezer. No, that's funny. We're allowed to say those things. Yeah, because I'm Jewish. Make sure to just put a clause like at the end and a dun-dun. Okay. Like, yes, Simone Norman is Jewish. I'll she... just put some parentheses around your name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three okay. of them. She, she had a bat mitzvah so she can make that joke. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I never did have a bat mitzvah. I was, uh, I was, I didn't want to. I was not. I was like a little Richard Dawkins as a child. I was not into religion, and also it would have been the worst day of my life because I had no friends in seventh grade. Oh my god! Say that into the microphone. Okay, so I just want to clarify that I'm I'm allowed to make Jew jokes because I'm Jewish. I had a bat mitzvah, uh, and it was the worst day of my life because a bat mitzvah. Just as like any other birthday party is only as fun as the friends you invite. Uh, and I didn't have any friends in the seventh grade. So we had a budget for, I don't know, like 40, 40 friends, which is insane. Uh, and I, we invited 40 kids from my grade who were not my friends, but they were just really excited to go because everyone wants to go to a bat mitzvah <laughs> and oh, yeah everyone and, goes. and they came and then they didn't really hang out with me much when we would play coke and pepsi and snowball and all the other like dj games and we had like a dj hype man and the hype man didn't remember my name and i was just like can, oh, can i go home now like 20 minutes in and oh my God. um so i don't think you should be like sad that you didn't have a bat mitzvah that, that was me at jonathan cohen's bar mitzvah in seventh grade um cohen. i wasn't it wasn't my bat, bat mitzvah but it was 
a bar mitzvah that I was invited to and I had no friends that year and no one wanted to hang out with me and I called my mom crying to come get me. So that's what my yeah. own would have been yeah. like. So imagine that, one. but it's your birthday <laughs> and you, uh, oops, sorry. And you, uh, your dress doesn't really fit cause you don't have boobs yet. So it keeps turning around on your body and the popular girl, Samantha comes up to you oh and is God. like, your dress is backwards. And I'm like, cool. Do you want to go get cake? And she's like, no. <laughs> oh man. It sounds like a nightmare. Mazel top to me. Am I right? Oh, maybe we should put this in the bonus. This is silly, but good. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm not sure if I want to get into this can of worms, but I'm going to try it anyway. Yeah. And if it, fails horribly we can cut it out so um this week and the convention was very much overshadowed for me by the fact that there were three shootings yeah um at least two of them were white supremacist violence and one of them was kind of confusing and complicated but definitely a misogynist there were so many shootings that weekend that i didn't even know that there was kind of a third i thought there were only two and i'm like glued to the news when that stuff yeah and i didn't even they're just slipping through the cracks if if fewer than like five people are killed you like don't even hear about it anymore yeah but that's technically a i mean that's a mass shooting that's there was not to to there was a there was a there were four people killed in my neighborhood in a shooting uh like a week ago and i i was like that's a mass shooting they they opened somebody opened fired into a community event 11 people were injured jesus christ yeah oh god we i hate the the amount that we have all been inured to this like yeah i'm just completely and i think i tweeted something out because this is how i was feeling and i was hoping not to sound like an asshole i was looking for community and it was an overwhelming response people felt the same way that i was like hey don't judge yourself if you feel literally nothing about this except a vague like oh man feeling because the human amygdala was not designed to be in constant end of like devastation panic and that it's and the fact that you're numb to it like and that we're getting these um push notifications every second of the day like you don't feel bad you, you know you're not a monster like that's literally the most i could muster up i looked at it and it was just like damn yeah. <laughs> and i felt and i felt worse about the fact that i had that response and yeah well that is one way that the human brain protects itself from yeah, trauma yeah right like we couldn't you couldn't make it a few blocks in new york city if you are fully inhabiting your humanity yes. at all times because new york city is full of homeless people and that sucks just dying publicly in front of you every single day with kids and dogs in down in the subway yeah that fucking sucks and it's fucking terrible and i fucking hate it that i could just like walk by them and not like drop to the ground like oh my god are you okay can i help you because you couldn't no live your life right and it it sucks um but anyway uh, a friend of ours a friend of the show our friend jasper from commune mag had um a bit of a take on this oh yeah and he you know he starts with a disclaimer he says you'll have to forgive or not my despair induced rhetorical excess okay so forgive him or don't <laughs> but you should be very concerned by the fact that the el paso shooter and nagel Angela, oh, describe on? immigration in the same way as a positive neoliberal project sponsored by corporate Democrats to batter down wages. 
He continues, if your central narrative frames immigrants as a threat to the working class and suggests that immigrant inflows need to be choked off to protect such working class, then yes, you've got blood on your hands. And I agree with him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Huh. Like the logic. I guess, yeah, that's breaking my brain a little bit, but I I think I I agree. The problem is it's a very common opinion to have those zero-sum politics that we were talking about before. Yeah. Just because people have, you know, in general have bad ideas doesn't mean that they're murderers. You know, if you're an ideologue for it, if like you're going out on the white nationalist hour and like pushing for that, then, okay, yeah, maybe like you're, you're, you're definitely making an alliance with like the people who are inspiring these shootings. Yeah, you're complicit. Uh, But if you've got... If you're like skeptical about the idea of open borders or no borders or revolution or communism, you don't have blood on your hands. You know? No, I think Especially he was talking. We, none of us were socialized growing up to at all. No, no, I know. Except I, any of that. Just, I mean, it's important to make the distinction. Point. I think he's talking mainly about the people spinning the narratives. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about your average person, your average voter who maybe doesn't understand the intricate web of connections between border enforcement, uh, white supremacy, and capitalism. Yeah. My dad, know? who's like, well, if there were no borders, then how would how would the countries be the countries? I'm like, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, it, takes a they little, wouldn't. it takes a little while to wrap your mind around that <laughs> idea. It took me a while. Which is why, one reason why the DSA's open borders resolution includes provisions to do political education around this issue. Mm-hmm. Because most people think it sounds crazy and it's not self-explanatory why it's not and right now like until we do more political education it's it is going to be essentially a right-wing talking point they did an excellent presentation on open borders i'm forgetting the the comrade who did it uh at the low man um branch meeting recently that was like overwhelmingly popular um and as a result i think we're talking in emerge about like building up a a cache of open borders reading material because it, yeah, it is the kind of thing where it's e- very easy to balk at it at first. I did. Uh, and then you start reading it and you realize actually how it's the inevitable like conclusion to most of this. Yeah. You can't have socialism in one bussy, you know, you gotta have yeah. socialism in all bussies. Yeah. Wait, Crack open those bussies. You might have to help me out a little bit here. Cause I don't follow too much the debates within DSA. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, I'm an internationalist. I think we need an international revolution against capitalism. Is that revolution going to be permanent? Uh, in a way, sure. Um, I'm not. You're trying to get me to say I'm a Trotskyist, which I'm not. <laughs> um, but so uh, where am I going with this? Um, You're an internationalist. You- okay. So the the point that the, the Nagel milieu makes is that there, there is a aspect of our economy that thrives on exploited, undocumented labor and immigrant labor, uh, even documented immigrant labor, because they are he- you can exploit them in a way you can't exploit native-born workers, and that's absolutely true. But then, for some reason, she proposes a solution to this, and Tucker Carlson does this as well. It's like the same ridiculous point that if we stop the flow of of immigrants and refugees, then somehow it's going to like reverse these like massive free trade agreements that have been going on for decades, or it's going to change the 
exploitation that exists in like every restaurant in New York City. So in a way, just focusing on like the humanitarian crisis at the border, which people absolutely should do, you know, like we've had episodes about this before. We should support No More Deaths. We should support El Otrolado and the, uh, the folks organizing in El Paso as well. But just calling for open borders doesn't change the exploitative relationship between the bourgeois class and a hyper-exploited underclass of immigrants. Well, sure, it doesn't. And that's why it goes into more detail about all of the steps we can take between now and then, which I think is really, it's important both to know what we need to do in the short term and to know why we're doing it, again, in the long term. And one mistake, I mean, I call it a mistake, like they're not openly bad faith actors, but one mistake made by, you know, Nagel Carlson et al. is like viewing the uh, the marginal the marginal status of immigrant workers as this like essential characteristic of them. Right. And not the result of a set of policy decisions that could absolutely be reversed. Right. I mean, we half of the refugees seeking asylum out of Latin America, their Central America are there because we destabilized their country yeah i mean but regardless of whose fault it is like if we want to have a global socialist movement borders are only going to divide the working class right and in the short term certainly i mean we did an episode on this with justin Akers chacon the ways in which the criminalization of migration was a conscious step taken to keep immigrant workers from organizing with their native-born uh, union siblings. And it worked. It worked really well. So, I mean, you can look at the problem from multiple angles. Um, I think the liberal take is often to say, oh, well, we can absorb a, a lot of people into our whatever kind of welfare state we have, so don't worry about it. Um, crossing the border should be illegally, should be like some kind of civil penalty maybe they release you with an ankle bracelet on and like that's one position that you know makes sense to a lot of people given our current circumstances we got to get the kids out of the cages before we can really think about anything else the way i see the liberal take is so, so there's this liberal concept of multiculturalism which is that it's good to have all these different people around society and like try all these new foods and listen to all this music but also a taco stand on every corner would be delicious. Oh, that's how, yeah, I love taco stands. So that sounds great. Um, but there's no question of like the fact that they are uh, that there's like this racial hierarchy or this cultural hierarchy where people of color have to perform these lower paying jobs and have to work way harder at them. Um, so that's their idea of multiculturalism is an intact class hierarchy. And obviously the right-wing uh, populist conception is the same thing. It's like, you know, blame essentially the Jews and the global elites for these people coming in, and we have to get them out if we're ever going to have a functioning country. And the the, the cultural uh, elements that these uh, folks bring into America end up getting co-opted by the white ruling class anyway when they open up their own, like, fusion taco whatever thing in a gentrifying neighborhood and like it doesn't even need it's like once it's here it doesn't even really need to be performed in a way by the people of like the working class people of color like it but we, the, it, in new york it will be if you're going to make the kind of profit you want to make as a small business owner sure but i mean just like that the that the the cultural influence gets 
sucked up anyway and co-opted in the end anyway. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Portland is a good example of that where you can have all that great Mexican food without very many Mexicans. Exactly. So what do you think of this idea that I was uh, trying to talk to Sam about today on the majority report? Maybe I picked the wrong moment. I usually do. Um, The idea that Jasper sets forth, which is basically um, if you support social democracy within the bounds of the nation state, um, you're basically drawing a line around a place and saying, oh, we need this. Is, these goodies are for the people inside of this circle and we need to defend it or protect it somehow from everyone coming in from outside the circle, which is a right wing talking point that's been used uh, very effectively by obviously disingenuous people who want to destroy the welfare state for everyone. But still, we hear it on the left, too. Like even Bernie Sanders, right? King, we want him to win. We mm-hmm. love him. Um, Grandpa. He is like he. This is the only conclusion you can have if you support the boundaries of your nation state, which any viable candidate for president is obviously going to do. When someone said um, they were yelling at him about how he's an advocate for open borders and he said, I'm afraid you may be getting your information wrong. That's not my view. Then he goes on. He says, what we need is comprehensive immigration reform. If you open the borders, my God, there's a lot of poverty in this world. You're going to have people from all over the world. And I don't think that's something that we can do at this point. Can't do it. So that is my position. Grandpa. So like on the one hand, I get it because nobody who's running for president is going to come out in favor of open borders. That's just not going to fly politically. But also like I think he it's not surprising that a social Democrat, Democratic Socialist, whatever, who wants to achieve these reforms within the bounds of the nation state would not have a satisfying answer on this right yeah, or, i mean his policies it's like the it's the new deal it's not like radical leftism which is and that's where you find an open borders argument it's right it's like i mean yeah and like obviously there are matters of degree yeah obviously i don't think that bernie sanders is the same as angela nagel or donald trump at all at all and there are plenty of liberals in between those two who support you know more humane measures because what human being wouldn't but like at the same time it seems like there's really no way around this in the end if you're going to have a border and you're going to enforce this border down the line in the future you know as things like climate change ramp up the amount of migration that's going to happen um we're going to need to deal with the issue of borders at some point or else we're going to become an eco-fascist country. I don't know. What do you think, Andy? Am I just hyperventilating? Well, I think like a major shortcoming of this discourse is that uh, when we talk about open borders, often what we're talking about is the areas of the border that are more or less unenforceable, which are very dangerous crossings through deserts and mountains. Well, that's what they had in the 90s, right? That was like the compromise. It was a, a it was a policy after NAFTA. I mean, you, Simone, you said earlier that like uh, um, half half the the people coming are a result of our foreign policy. I assume you're talking about like Central American yeah. refugees, but the people coming after NAFTA are also more or less economic refugees because NAFTA destroyed the Mexican economy, especially in indigenous areas, uh, traditional indigenous markets. So you had millions of people coming from the south of Mexico. Um, and initially, you could cross through cities, and they started to enforce that. 
And then the, uh, the, the policy of the Clinton administration was to push people through these very dangerous crossings through the deserts where you needed to hire a guide who is part of organized crime, a coyote, to bring you through. And, you know, if you were a woman and you were, be, you know, not just a woman, but, you know, there's a lot of rapes and sexual assaults that happen in that. A lot of people are left for dead. Um, and a lot of people thousands of people have died unknown thousands so that's not a good policy it's not no. a good policy as like a backdoor to get into the country and so it, when when people talk about open borders if they're talking about these dangerous desert crossings or t- crossing through rivers and mountains that shouldn't happen like there there should be a way to just co- like i believe in in freedom of movement like i can go to mexico i, I can was go just there. i can go to europe like, I think everybody should have that same ability if they want to. The problem is a lot of people coming don't want to. They have to. Like, because there's no economy where, they're, where they come from. Yeah, well, freedom of movement should also involve the right to stay at home without having your life destroyed mm-hmm. by imperialist violence yeah. or uh, predatory trade deals. So these become much more complicated questions when we look at it that way. And Sanders is not you know, uh, as like refreshing as he is, he's not a very complex thinker about anything, really. No. You know, he's not, he's not Gramsci up there. He's, no. He sees how ridiculous this oligarchic system that we have is, and he wants to do something against it, and I respect him for that. But you can't expect him or really anyone to have a satisfactory explanation of the border unless you're just going to be like totally maximalist, like armchair guys like me, and just say, we need a revolution against the border. But that doesn't make any sense either, right? So, well, in the not long a platform term, you run on. In the long term, it is the only thing that makes sense, right? It's the inevitable conclusion, like and, and it worries me when liberals or even social democrats agree with the basic logic of the right, which is the border is a legitimate thing that needs to be enforced either by implicit violence the threat of state violence or actual violence and that leads you to some very bad places and like you know the democrats their policy is their rhetoric is different but the policy is not that different it's just less stupid Hmm. when they're like we don't want a wall we want a smart wall made with drones and technology and stuff i mean the only difference between the democrats and the republicans on this issue is one is willing to direct hate towards immigrants and the like like verbal hate and the other is you know the the republicans are willing to do that but the democrats are saying come on they're good for the economy like we need that we need to exploit this this is human capital to be exploited and it's you know it's so yeah we won't commit human rights violations against them as they come in but like but already crossing through the border is a human rights violation like, like crossing through the desert like that's already a human rights violation right yeah. Um, so like basically the, the way this, di- the, why this discourse is so ridiculous, even between like the DSA, like the right and the left of the DSA and the Republicans and the Democrats, well, it's just, that I don't think that full spectrum of like the situation is being seriously taken into account. Well, the DSA, it passed this resolution overwhelmingly at the convention. I think it might've even been on the consent agenda, which is the stuff that everybody there's broad enough support for that you don't even need to debate it. It just passes. So within the DSA, I mean, I agree that it is confusing because on the one hand, we passed a lot of pie in the sky shit like open borders, affirming some very radical 
socialist politics. And on the other hand, all of the practical activity, a lot of the practical activity that we're doing right now is bourgeois electoralism. Mm -hmm. And I think it is now the job of the left caucuses in DSA to, you know, talk amongst ourselves, figure out what it means to be some kind of revolutionary Marxist in non-revolutionary times such as these and figure out how to apply this widely agreed upon ideology and these widely agreed upon goals and horizons to our day-to-day praxis. 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 I agree. <laughs> and I, I yeah, I agree. think that's, that's like the way to go for sure. And like, um, I don't have all the answers, but I'm yeah. committed to figuring it out. At the same time, I, I kind of sympathize with like frustration with the ambiguity of something like an open borders declaration, but it doesn't have to make sense to me, I guess. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and for the final portion of this show, I think I was hoping me and Simone and, you know, Andy, if he wants to, we're going to have a little girls chat about the uses of one of my favorite things, irony in humor on the left is it good is it bad should we get rid of it should we listen to jay posadas and just stop making jokes altogether? what are we doing uh i mean i love irony i've everybody does irony's objectively cool and good um i was on i was talking to um brett o'shea recently of rev left radio about this uh because friend we, of the show friend of the show he's the best and uh and I'm just starting to get really tired of the irony poisoning <gasps> that I see so rampant on. I mean, what? Like, I guess just on Twitter. <laughs> but I mean, what, what is t- Twitter? I mean, besides, you know, a place to, to tell jokes it's or whatever. It's a place it's, for friends. It's oh, wait, that's my friends. space. <laughs> it's also a place, it's a place for enemies. It's, Twitter is definitely yeah, a place for you, enemies. You have your top eight enemies mm-hmm. on Twitter, but it's also a place to to have discourse. And there's a lot of leftist discourse that goes on uh, for good, for better, or for worse. And I just feel lately like um, like contrarianism and irony and uh, you know uh, shit posting or whatever has gotten to the point that it's it's deadening us in a way i feel deadened by it a little bit uh and we all do yeah and i love strategic irony i'm a comedian i'm not i'm not like what did i say to brett i'm not like unbreakable kimmy schmidt out here just like sunny (laughs) positive and really hyped like no i've i'm i've i use i make heavy use of irony but but i do think that uh, that there's a, a time and a place and uh, to be strategic about when you're sincere, when you're earnest, when you're a real person is really important in times of uh, just abject pain and suffering. Uh, and those moments of connection and humanity and earnestness are, I feel, uh, I I just feel so so thirsty for them. I I'm thirsty for some sincerity right now. Does wow. that resonate at all? I oh, mean, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, one thing I feel like my Twitter personality is a little bit uh, all over the place sure. because there are times when I want to be ironic about stuff and 
I mean, especially like, you know, being of the tribe, this is how we deal with the bad things in life. Of course. If I couldn't joke about the bad things in life, if I, I couldn't would've... joke about the bad things that uh, come in my way, I would have uh, blown my brains out by now, you, you know? know, but then there are times when I'm feeling very sincere and I post stuff and I'm sincere about it and I don't make any jokes and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm just being a person. And doesn't that feel good? Yeah. Because then people respond like, hey, me too. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, damn, that feels good to be seen as a person and to just recognize our mutual humanity. And then, uh, you know, when I when I post irony, I receive irony back. And obviously, and there's just never any we're all just talking at each other. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Andy? Let me run the theory past you. OK. So Simon Critchley in uh, a, uh, an essay on humor from uh, 2007 or something like that. I'll try to put it in the show notes. He had a theory that like 99% of humor is essentially punching down. It's like designed to, if it's not an ethnic joke, it might as well be. It's designed mm. to let people laugh at someone lower than them to kind of justify the social hierarchy in one way or another, even if you're just like making fun of like a weird person that you saw or, you know, if your if your humor is like, am I the only, am I crazy? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like if, that, if that's like, if that's like your sense of humor, um, he just sees like most humor that he sees on TV and in standup and movies as in one way or another defending the social order. Uh, and then there's something he calls true humor, which he sees as um, not like punching up necessarily, but just, you know, sort of uh, amplifying the absurdity of modern life. Yes. And the examples he gives for that is uh, like the, the black humor of the surrealists, Kafka, uh, Jonathan Swift, that kind of satire. Um, not the most timely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he is a... A philosopher. After Hilarious all. that shit. Um, <laughs> but he says this is like this is the kind of humor that that kind of helps us break the spell of how ridiculous life is in a way because there's no sort of resolution. Yeah, or, Jerry Seinfeld as well. What's the deal with airline peanuts? We've got to take it joke by joke, I guess. But then at the end of this essay, he basically says like. And, you know, then there's like the political project of building communism and creating intersubjectivity and building community. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a laugh riot. That's what every stand-up that I not, do is about. But that's not funny. He's just like, the, what we actually have to do is just not funny. So humor, although it's like, you know, something that we just need right now to sort of soothe how fucked up the world is, it's, it's kind of like psychoanalysis. I don't know. Like you, you, like you need to kind of reprogram you, these like fucked up, hierarchies you have in your head and humor can help you do that yes and irony can help you do that i just worry because i feel this way that um that a certain amount strikes the right balance and is soothing but taking it to taking it not taking it too far but doing it as a rule may it, it deadens you in a way and isn't soothing and just it, it doesn't energize you it does it's does that does that make sense? Like doing what is a rule? Doing 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 irony, doing cynicism as a rule mm-hmm. in your in your comedy, in your character, in your performance. Um, and not like I said before, not every entertainer has an obligation to energize and activate like 
young organizers or anything like that. But I just worry about the um, the degree to which the all of the like all of Twitter or all of what you're hearing, all of the comedians you like or all of the profiles you follow are just so irony poisoned that you it is clamping down on all of the like your collective energy. Yeah, totally. I mean, to to push back a little bit, like the left should be fun, right? Yeah. Like I mean, I mean, I think we agree about that. Oh, and of course. I, like maybe I'm just flattering myself, but I was, you know, thinking about the parties that I've planned and how I've always thought of it as this kind of like weird thing I know how to do because I used to be a party girl and to some degree still am. And like maybe I'm not like a real serious political organizer, but at least this is something that I can do for. DSA or for Emerge or everyone. But like lately I've been thinking like, no, this is not not organizing. Like I'm creating a space where people can dance. People can talk to each other. People can make these informal social connections. They really do improve our cohesion and our functioning, I hope, as some kind of organized body. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to get out over my skis on it. But I do think it's important to like like we were talking about earlier, organizing is mostly thankless fucking drudgery. And it's really important to do things that are fun in between all the drudgery so that we don't get totally burned out. Yeah, but we're not talking about fun. We're talking about humor. Well, humor is fun. It is a fun thing, but a dance party is not necessarily funny. All right. Have you seen your dance, buddy? (laughs) Because it is a laugh riot. (laughs) Yep, Elaine dance all over the place all the time. Real Elaine Bennis out. But if I was laughing at you being a bad dancer, which would be a silly thing for me to do because I'm a horrible dancer, <laughs> uh, that would be me like laughing at someone who's like worse off than me, right? Mm-hmm. Like that would be the bad kind of humor that I'm talking oh, about. Oh, but it's a, it would be affectionate laughing, laugh, laughter. Laughing. All right, let Maybe. me just start dancing right now, and we'll see if the laughter <laughs> that is mean or not. Yeah, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying is like you know, there's there's like a joy to having community and to being together with people and to yeah, building not, things. I guess I just shoehorned my thing into that just now. But I'm it's sorry. Not funny, you know. It could be. <laughs> it like there could be some laughs had, but it's not like the point is. It's like like comedy is something different, you know. Like if you're on Twitter to be funny, or if your job is to be funny. It's it's a very different goal than building community or building communism. I mean, it is true that I feel like for me, my politics will always come first. And as a result of that, I will probably never be as funny as some people for whom the entertainment aspect will always come first. So for me, I do both badly. <laughs> I just have as both. I like go back and forth doing the minimum in each enough to keep me relevant oh, you should start a podcast oh shit that's uh that's what it's all about really you <laughs> don't have to be enough. that good at either thing you just have to be kind of good at both yeah well i have a microphone yeah well you're halfway there Hell yeah so i also wanted to talk about irony in terms of what's cool right totally because we were talking about this a little bit last night. Simone came over for dinner. It was very nice. Me salmon. It was delicious. We had a little girls chat. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about what was cool in the naughty oddies versus what's cool now. And it gives me great pleasure to know that uh, Gavin McInnes, right, a man who foisted his vision of what's cool on the world 
for at least a few years. And you can say that you never thought Vice was cool, but that's just not true. Like, I don't make the cool rules. I just know them. (laughs) So that used to be cool, right? Whoever cares the least wins. You got to be edgy and ironically racist and sexist or whatever. And it's just all about doing drugs and not caring about people and caring about stuff is lame. Exactly. Fast forward to now, uh, people like AOC are cool, who are kind of like the total negation of that right like she's such a millennial she cares so much about stuff and somehow that that's cool and caring about stuff like we're doing a leftist podcast right now uh i mean i don't want to toot my own horn but i think we're pretty cool and we also care about stuff and people like gavin it makes me so happy to know i've said this before and i'll say it again this man who called me an obese five and just like talked so much shit about me um in reference to the story i wrote about terry richardson a while back and um other things as well that i won't get into right now um yeah this guy is surrounded by losers and he's smart and self-aware enough to know that he's not cool and he'll never be cool again. And that makes me so happy. Like that's better than sending him to the wall, right? This is a living execution for him and I hope it lasts a long time. I mean, that's like his, his thing advice was pure irony, you know? And, and even when he tried to be political, he was trying to veil himself in irony and, it's just something that's from another decade. Well, you know? do you think that it was really ironic knowing that he's since gone full fash? No, he's always been like this. I read his, I read his biography. He, he like, uh, he started vice as like a way to launder money from this Haitian organization in Montreal <laughs> as like a joke. You know, it's always been, it's always been like, what can I get away with to build my subcultural circle of friends? And then, and that was just, and he'd like start doing that at really the right time to like cash in on the counterculture, but the counterculture moved away from, from Vice's brands and, uh, like sometime in the, I don't know really what the turning point was, but in like the late two thousands, early tens, it became just a lot more interesting to like actually believe in things and actually be sincere and try to like find something real in your life and to the point where vice now has a channel for um wellness i believe and the i think they have one for like charity or activism or something if i'm looking to get involved in my community and i'm just like where do i go i immediately type in vice's website to my browser to to find something i think what i'm responding to why i'm why i'm why i was talking with this uh, about this with you last night and why i'm bringing it up on the show is that um, I have been on Twitter since 2008 when I was like 15 and I have changed a lot, obviously, um, since then. And all of my earnest ass 15 year old posts oh my God. from 2008. So I recently gained a lot of followers very quickly in a way that was very disarming. And a lot of people were going back and like retweeting my tweets from 2008. Oh my God. I would die. Oh yeah. Someone did that to me. There was one on there that was like, um, I just want to murder my whole family, which is something you say when you're 15, but looks bad as an adult saying, I yeah. just want to murder my entire family. Like, yeah, like call the cops. now just as an adult, you don't say that. So, and, and, and other things like, um, like, uh, uh, 
so nauseous from that McDonald's. Anyway, vote for me for Drama Club Vice President tomorrow. Oh, my God. <laughs> that kind of shit. And I just was like, yikes. And and I, I just, I guess the reason why I, I've been thinking about this more lately is that I've, I've been going through this strange, um, I've become more associated with, with all these different uh, factions, or not factions, but like, like, like audiences, like poster poster groups on Twitter, and how they approach humor, how they uh, make fun of people, how they build people up. A lot of them are leftists, or at least they say they are. And uh, I'm not slamming anyone. I'm just I'm just trying to to say what I've noticed, and what I've noticed is um, is that uh, you know sometimes it can it can hurt people's feelings. <laughs> yeah. What I'm trying to say is stop making fun of me <laughs> right <laughs> for being 15 ones seriously just, i don't give a shit i uh, i went through my old tweets as well after uh after mike cernovich uh tried to get sam fired from msnbc oh my God. a while back for an old joke that he made about roman polanski i was like oh no what if i'm next and like i'm probably too low on the totem you pole for him to about waste roman his time polanski on that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> But like I look, I went through all of my old tweets, and I was like, "Oh, this these tweets could be used to embarrass me if like Gawker were still around and wanted to make fun of me." But none of them were like bad or like cancelable. But like, hmm, I guess twenty five year olds are uh, uh what, what 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 were all my tweets about? They were about boys, how lonely I was. Um, parties, drugs, music, cats, and vegan food, pretty much. Which are like not the most, not the most surprising things to be interested in as a twenty-five-year-old. When you're twenty-five, you think that everyone like cares about like what you're eating and what drugs you want to do or whatever on Twitter. Well, like, like I didn't know how to use. I didn't know what Twitter was. Yeah. Nobody did. No, it's yeah. So, it's not like, being 25. It's actually just it's because I'm 26. It's the it's the just the first iteration of social media and like Twitter and stuff like is when we were just like, yeah, any passing little thought that comes through my head or any experience and just catalog it. See if anyone else well, wants to hear. You about are it. wise beyond your years, my friend. Thank you. And like, I thought about deleting all these old tweets. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's so embarrassing. But I'm like, no, I can't kill that little goth baby. I'll start retweeting you and you'll start to change your tune. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll start looking back and you'll really quickly be like, eh. like some of them were kind of cringy, but most of them I was just like, Oh, like that, I was a little goth baby yeah. and she's still somewhere inside of me being very tender and sensitive and occasionally a bitch. But like, I can't kill. I don't want to kill that part of myself. You know, I think was it Joan Didion who said you should stay on nodding terms with your former self. Mm. And I really believe that. And like, I think that's part of I don't know, like, it's really hard to embarrass me because I have put all the embarrassing shit out there myself already. So I don't know. I mean, people can try, but they might not get very far with it. What I'm saying, we should do like, I mean, okay, if we really wanted to lean into this bonus, we would do some dramatic readings of our old tweets. Oh my God. I can pull up a few right now. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, let's do it. I, I, I used it like it was the Facebook wall. You know, I would tweet stuff like, who wants to get dinner? Yeah. And that was like the whole tweet. Can you imagine if I did that now? People would be like, she's lost her goddamn mind. <laughs> I would probably get some interesting replies from people. All right, here's some. Um, December 6, 2008, Simone Norman is seeing Twilight with Daddy. Haha. <laughs> oh my God. Text me. That's cute. Uh, a few days later, homework all day, then seeing Twilight again with Mommy. Ah! 
How did you find your old tweets so fast? Uh, some of these are Facebook. Some of these are tweets. And then the, here's some song lyrics. The days are bright and filled with pain. Enclose me in your oh. gentle rain. Oh, my God. Then I've got after, after today's AP psych lesson on autism spectrum disorder, I am not getting my kids vaccinated as newborns. Oh, <laughs> wow. Wow. Anti-vaxxer, Simone. Good thing you got out in front of that one. Yeah, I uh, we are my um you can still be the ironic choice for president though yeah <laughs> my professor like had an agenda it's clearly true. and then i just have one that says that i was in love with joe rogan haha <laughs> yay fear factor oh my god <laughs> that did not age well no none of it <laughs> ah. i'm not getting my babies vaccinated no. adorable we should be able to laugh at ourselves i think big time but you should have affection for yourself, too. Yes. And that's where the earnestness comes in. Exactly. So, you know, all of you guys who have little goth babies inside of you, too, maybe don't don't hate. Nurture. Nurture your little goth baby, because that ultimately will be some sort of guide for you in trying to be a good person who also is patient and kind and generous with other people in the same way that they were with you when you were a little goth baby. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Not to be like overly sincere or anything. Ugh. This is disgusting. <laughs> we're, we're making ourselves sick. <laughs> we're just disproving everything that we just said. Gag me with a spoon. Exactly. It's fine. So um, is there anything that you would like to plug, Simone, before we move into our bonus portion I mean, in which we are going to talk about the video that broke the internet i mean follow me on twitter uh why simone why you can follow me on instagram at local honey h-u-n-n-y and uh, i do live shows um and i write so anytime i do those things it'll be on my social media and you can plug into it there hell yeah and uh you know maybe check out some of her old tweets and see if they're oh um, my god everything that you hope they would be just cancel me somebody please please i'm begging you <laughs> end this for me cancel me oh uh, well uh hopefully we'll have we'll both have many more years before we get canceled we'll see